1: A Living History Production
2: I'm Peter Hart And I'm Gary Bain And together we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast Hello and welcome to the podcast, I'm Gary Bain and once more I'm at Shea Hart with Peter Hart And today, we haven't had to remember anything today Pete, so today... Uh is Jutland, the race to the north. Now, this is another in our long-running series on Jutland. We're, we're actually stretching this out much longer than the battle.
3: <laughs> Definitely. Mm. Uh So, where are we up to? Come on.
2: Well, Hipper, he'd performed his reconnaissance and entrapment role to perfection. Was that
3: during the run to the south?
2: Uh, and the east and the west. No. He was running all over the shop. Now, throughout the early exchanges, he'd kept sheer admirably, given that he was an admiral, well informed as to events and had succeeded in enticing a significant section of the Grand Fleet into the moor of the entire High Seas Fleet. Now, Shear's yes. plans were about to reach fruition. Looked
3: like it, looked like it, uh, and uh, so that you've got the British and German fleets sailing converging. Converging is a posh word for it. And uh, who were the first British ships to sight the High Seas Fleet? Because yeah, the, the battle cruisers are fighting. You have a battle cruiser, so Everything's going off. What? what who first sights the high seas fleet?
2: Well, that's the second light cruiser squadron who were performing their scouting role, some three miles ahead of Beatty, Admiral Beatty. Vice Admiral Beatty.
3: So, first of Admiral all, Be- Admiral B Be- Admiral the the Admirable, Crichton. No, don't confuse everybody. Anyway, the uh, the first of all, they sight they send a sighting report of a German cruiser that they spot. Uh, that's about sixteen thirty, um, but. It, this isn't just a stray uh, German cruiser, is it? And uh, the, the, soon, from from the flagship Southampton of the, the Second Light Cruiser Squadron, uh, Commodore William Goodenough sees something. I better tell you. I better tell you what he sees. And I'll do that now. We saw ahead of us first smoke, then masts, then ships. Look, sir," said Arthur Peters. "This is the day of a live cruiser's lifetime. The whole of the high seas fleet is before you. It was." 16 battleships with destroyers dispersed around them on each bow. bow. This was reported. Bow. Bow. Did I say bow? Bow and bow. bow. bow, bow now, bow. At
2: 1633... Now, obviously, the times are... Uh, a bit
3: uh, a, a I bit. think they're up to seven minutes... Three and a half minutes either way, which is a seven-minute difference. Uh,
2: at 1633-ish, they sent the momentous signal by searchlight. What
3: battleships, south-east. east the excitement, I can feel it running through me body like lightning.
2: And it also ran through uh, the bridge of the Lion, and it uh, it was fast becoming acclimatized to such surprises. I
3: bet they were <laughs> things blown up all round.
2: And this is Flag Captain Alfred Chatfield aboard HMS Lion. We had no information that German battle fleet was at sea. Rather, had the Admiralty told us that they were still in the Jade River. It was therefore a surprise, yet not a great one, as it was a possibility. BT always had in mind.
3: He didn't seem to act like he had it in mind, did he? Uh, now, BT oh, you got to give him credit. BT is not a bad officer. He's no, just, no, no, was, and he acts immediately, doesn't he? Does. he? He's more slapdash than bad. Um, he leaves the so he leaves the fifth battle squadron. They're still firing at Hipper's battle cruisers. They carry on to the south. Uh but he turns his battle cruisers to the port and heads directly towards the reported sighting. Uh he he believed it, but he wanted to see with his own eyes. So he turns towards the high seas fleet. Um now what's happening ahead of him? What's Gudenor doing? What's he doing? Well Goodenor he also held on towards the German fleet. Because
2: he believed that it was his duty to amass as much information as possible for his senior
3: officers, and he's one of the very few uh, uh, officers who who, have a respons- who who act on their responsibility to senior command. Anyway, this is him, Commodore William Goodenough, or good enough, good enough for me. Uh, we hang on for a few minutes uh, to make sure before confirming the message. My commander, efficient and cool, said, "If you're going to make that signal, you'd better make it now, sir. You may never." Make another. Other remarks some acid, some ribald, were passed you <laughs> Well yeah, I mean you know, one shell could almost do for a light cruiser and they're sailing towards the whole bloody high seas fleet.
2: Now BT didn't have to pursue his southeasterly course for very long. No. After just a couple of minutes at sixteen forty, he sighted the advanced ships of the High Seas Fleet, and instantly his position was transmogrified. Now, there's a word you don't hear every day, Yeah,
3: Pete. I thought you might not be able to pronounce it. Although, actually, when you said it, I realised that... How else would you say it?
2: No longer the gallant admiral accepting casualties in the pursuit of his weaker prey. Now, he was the
3: prey. Oh, Gary, it's so exciting. The situation complained... Complained? <laughs> I'm complaining about this situation, said Petey. Now, it's completely changed, does not it? Uh is what's his duty now? What What is his duty?
2: Well, to lead the high seas fleet under the guns of the Grand Fleet, while simultaneously ensuring that he passed as much intelligence as possible to his commander-in-chief, who would assume the sole responsibility for achieving the destruction of the German fleet.
3: Yeah, well, as we will see, he does part of this... <laughs>
2: He does. And uh, Beatty issued a flag signal ordering oh God, his force
3: flag to
2: about turn. He timed it almost perfectly for as the battle cruisers, cruisers turned, the first shells from the still distant German dreadnought splashed around them.
3: Splash, splash. Yeah, it's 20,000 yards range, a bit too long for accuracy uh, and, and, and too fleeting an opportunity. They could have got the range, but they didn't have time. Uh it would have been bloody unlucky if if one of the battle cruisers uh, had been hit at that stage. So Beatty's look holds; his ships escape unscathed, and they turn their turrets round to starboard, ready to. Because which way were they pointing before? The other way, port. Oh, so, thank you very much. <laughs> so they'd be ready to re-engage the, the German battlecruisers, who, of course, would also be turning any time there. Now, uh, during the flight to, to the north, Gudenau, he continued to send out regular reports to Jellicoe. Unfortunately, there's a problem. What can you imagine that problem being in the, word, the, in the time before GPS?
2: Well, the constant manoeuvring of course necessary to evade the German shells rendered their navigational dead reckoning erroneous.
3: Could you explain navigational dead? reckoning for me, Gary? No.
2: Now, as a result, the reports made by Goodenow were marred by seriously inaccurate estimates of the position by latitude and longitude of the high seas fleet. So, in essence, he's getting it wrong because they're moving. Yeah,
3: it's not, it's not his fault. He's trying his best. Now, then there's another disaster. It's an, it's another signalling uh, calamity, like Calamity Jane was, you know. Uh, as the battle cruisers turn, the fifth battle squadron, you've got to imagine it, they've turned and they're now going to the north, but the fifth battle squadron, sorry, uh, the battle cruiser turned, the fifth battle squadron is still heading to the south, and they're still firing at the German battle cruisers, and they're watching... <laughs> Still watching the German destroyers that are still out. Remember, we we told you about the destroyer action.
2: Yeah, there's sort of melee going on between the lines,
3: isn't there? Very exciting that was, wasn't it?
2: Now this is this is controversial, so we're going to
3: glide (laughs) by it. Well, yeah, uh, much as indeed the fifth battle squadron continued to glide towards the high seas fleet. What happens? Let's let's yeah.
2: Well, at sixteen forty-eight, as they came up to the point where they would pass the battle cruisers on opposite courses. BT hoisted a flag order that was unambiguously directed at Evan Thomas.
3: He's on the bar, room, isn't he?
2: Alter course in succession, sixteen points to starboard.
3: Now this was a bit unfortunate because he, instead of turning all at once, he says in succession, uh, it's in a turn together or whatever. Uh, now that wouldn't have been uh, that important, but there was another fucking co- <laughs>
2: <laughs> a serious breakdown. Thank you, Gary. In signals procedure, I think, is what you're struggling with. If if
3: only the listeners could see me with my head hung in shame.
2: (laughs) The flag signal only became executive in the sense that it should be carried out instantly only after it had been acknowledged by the relevant subordinate admiral and at the moment at which it was hauled down aboard the flagship.
3: Now, this was not the signal to turn. Was not made executive at the ideal moment. That's so that the fifth battle squadron could swing round and one by one into the line, into the line behind the battle cruisers. Uh, it wasn't. Uh, and what does Evan Thomas do?
2: Well, for a second time that day, he chose to rely on correct naval signal procedure rather than use his common sense to turn before the formal executive order was issued.
3: Oh no. This, this, I think he's, he hasn't got a bloody leg to stand on here, has he? It, it's um, what does he think? Beatty wanted him <clears throat> to sail the, the foremost valuable ships in the navy right into the concentrated fire of the leading dreadnoughts of the high seas fleet uh, to cover the retreat of the battleships. What did he think was happening?
2: Well, they were super dreadnoughts, yeah, but not that super. No.
3: I mean, it, it's ridiculous. So let carry for four or five minutes. The fifth battle squadron carries on racing to the south, and at the same time, remember the high seas fleet is racing the other way. So if it, you've got to realize how much of time is passing. The speed—it's just a bloody disaster. And you're going to be Lieutenant Patrick Brind, Brind, Brind aboard HMS uh, uh, Malaya, one of the fifth battle squadron.
2: Up to this time, the shooting for us had been like a peace battle practice. I felt that according to all the rules of the game, the German battlecruisers ought not to remain much longer afloat if only the light held. I, I had not up to date thought much of the dangers of being hit by a projectile, except perhaps just before the action, when my mind did certainly wander on the gruesome prospects of a naval action. Now, however, matters took a different complexion. We were closing the high seas fleet at a rate of 40 knots and there was every prospect of being engaged with them in a very short period of time. My feelings at that time are rather hard to analyse for as things were then happening quite quickly I had not much time for thinking whether I was frightened or not but I dare say that if i had stopped to think I should have been.
3: Yeah and when he says 40 knots does he mean they're going at 40? No they're going at about 23 but the other side's going at about 20. So, combined together, they're closing at a speed of four. It's ridiculous. Now, at last... Uh, uh, at, sh- sorry, go For sure! Now, at last, around
2: 1654, the offending signal was hauled down and thus made executive. Well, it's only then that the uh, 5th Battle Squadron begins their delayed turn.
3: Now, didn't we say that was going to be in succession?
2: We did, Uh, which earlier that seemed merely overly fussy, but uh, now it's extremely dangerous. Well,
3: because they're well within range now. Why is it so dangerous? Give me a a technical explanation, which I'm sure you're up to.
2: Well, because the German uh, 3rd Battle Squadron could concentrate their fire on the points at which the Super dreadnoughts would all pass in their turn. True... Their spotting would be rendered difficult by the forest of splashes in such a small area, but on the other hand, their target was a static point
3: in the ocean. Right, well, uh, let's go back to Lieutenant Patrick Brine aboard HMS Malaya. What does he say?
2: I must confess to a feeling of relief when I realised that we were to turn round, though not at it being done in succession. When it was the turn of the Malaya to turn, the turning, turning point was a very, <laughs> a very hot corner, as, of course, the enemy had concentrated on that point. The shell was pouring at a very rapid rate, and it is doubtful if we, the last ship in the line, could get through without at least a severe hammering. However, the captain decided that point by turning the ship early.
3: <gasps> Independent thought and action, Gary!
2: When we had turned, or rather, as... We, uh, I was turning my turret to the starboard side. I saw our battle cruisers, who were proceeding northerly at full speed. They were already quite eight thousand yards ahead of us, engaging the German battle cruisers. I then realised that the four of us alone—Barham, Warspite, Valiant, and Malaya—would have to entertain the high seas fleet. Oh, it's
3: lovely tea and cakes.
2: Mm, some famous ships there.
3: Yeah, we love those ships, don't we? Now uh, that that that, that chap we ought to mention his name, Captain Algernon Boyle. He he got the Malaya through a, a, a terribly dangerous position, um, but she didn't get through without being hit at all. And um, this is what Sub Lieutenant Clifford C- Caslon uh, says. He was on the Malaya, of course. He says, this. we were hit twice, both times on the armour with no damage. This was my." first experience of being hit. The whole ship seemed to jar, but I didn't notice the noise of the explosion to any particular extent. One might compare the sensation to the feeling in one's arms if one takes a sledgehammer and brings it, brings it down as hard as possible on an, anvil, on an anvil, keeping one's arms rigid. Well, many a time I've done that, Gary, and I've thought, this must be exactly what it feels like to be in a battleship when it's hit by a shell. Isn't that? That's the sort of reverse, I suppose.
2: Yeah. And and you have many experiences of being hit, don't you? Yes. Now, although it had been a close-run thing, the 5th Battle Squadron had, for the moment, got away with their over-close exposure to the full force of their many enemies. Now, meanwhile, at 1643, Beatty had also ordered the recall of his destroyers from between the lines.
3: Yeah, yeah, that, uh, and we're not going to go on any more. I mean, there, a lot of these things are actually dramatic in the extreme. If you were to read my book Jutland, you'll see the drama of those destroyers caught between the lines. But we haven't got time, have we, Gary? We've got to press on, 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 on. Is your cry?
2: Now, successive commanders in chiefs of the High Seas Fleet had schemed to isolate and destroy a significant section of the Grand Fleet. As the surviving battlecruisers and the super dreadnoughts of uh, the Vice Admiral, Sir David Beatty's battlecruiser fleet, that's a mouthful, I I uh, just... began their run to the north, they represented the most glittering of prizes.
3: Glittering of prizes. Is that like the glitterati?
2: It is. Are you going to join in at all?
3: No, so I just think you're so... You're ex- you just seem to have a grip on everything that's going on. Anyway, all right. All that, now, Admiral Reinhard Scheer, he must have realised <coughs> that there was a possibility that the Grand Fleet was out, but he's prepared to take the risk of an encounter to get this this prize, this glittering prize, which is tantalisingly within the range of his big bangy things. Uh, What would happen if any of Beatty's ships were hit and in any way incapacitated?
2: Well, at that point, the high seas fleet would inevitably overhaul them and their destruction would surely be assured.
3: Oh, blimey. And at a stroke, thereby, the Germans would erode the measure of superiority that the Grand Fleet had. It would also do something else. What else would it do? It would
2: remove forever the myth of British invincibility and perhaps then allow a decisive confrontation on an equal footing.
3: Now, for the Germans, uh, I think uh, the overall result of the battle is going to be decided by this phase. What is it? If they could destroy Beatty's force without suffering serious losses themselves, then they'd have achieved their objectives. They'd have won the battle. Before Admiral Sir John Jellicoe could get the mighty Grand Fleet into action. Um... Well, they've already done well. What, what about the sinking of the Indefatigable and Queen Mary during the run to the south?
2: Well, that's that's at least a, a very good start, isn't it? But it was not nearly enough to tip the naval balance of power towards the Germans. For Beattie, this phase of the battle was merely concerned with survival while he lured the high seas fleet into Jellicoe's grasp. And so, with the Germans apparently in control, an intriguing passage of the battle began.
3: So what we've got is we've got the 5th battle squadron, 5th battle squadron are steaming north. They're following Beattie's battle cruisers. And behind them... <speaking> and <singing> <speaking> and <singing> ...come the 3rd battle squadron of the high seas fleet. Then the rest of them. So there we have it. We Let's name them again. The Barham, the Valiant, the Warspite, and the Malaya. They've been battered to buggery by the concentration fire from the guns of the leading German dreadnoughts. Uh, and they've got a long way to go before they're going to meet up with the Grand Fleet. Uh,
2: and you're yeah. going to tell us what Commander Humphrey Walwyn of HMS Warspite
3: says. Very soon after the turn, I suddenly saw on the starboard quarter the whole of the high seas fleet. I saw... At least I saw masts, funnels and an endless ripple of orange flashes all down the line. How many I didn't try and count as we were getting well straffed at this time. Wow. Now,
2: under this concentration of fire, the Barham was beginning to take a fair amount of punishment with three hits being recorded within the six minutes between 16.56 and 17.02.
3: That's that's three big 12-inch shells smashing home, or or more, actually, because this is what Lieutenant Commander Stephen Tillard on the HMS Barham says.
2: I saw all four rounds of the Salvo, which hit Barham in mid-air as they came. One hit penetrated the deck six feet from where I stood. It went on to explode below without doing much harm. Another hit below the waterline and blew a hole in the opposite side of the ship, causing jagged edges which may have slowed us up. It wiped out a torpedo detachment.
3: That's just a bit of coldness about that, isn't it? Now, 1652, Admiral Franz von Hipper, he's also executed his own 16 point turn in succession. And so he's now steering north as well. He's seven miles ahead of Shear. Uh, so the first scouting group, they're firing at the four British battlecruisers, uh, with each ship aiming at its opposite number in the line. Uh, uh, while the, uh, the von der Tann, which is already in a terrible state from the battering by the 5th Battle Squadron is bringing up its rear. How many guns has it got left?
2: It's got one uh, operational 11-inch turret.
3: Yeah, so two bangy things. Uh, and it's aiming at the Malaya of the 5th Battle Squadron. Uh, th- th- what would you, how would you describe the condition of the German battlecruisers at this, at this time, Gary, using technical terms, if possible?
2: Well, they were beginning to fray at the edges under the accumulated weight of hits they'd suffered.
3: Yeah. Now... The visibility, any better on the run to the uh, south? Not if anything,
2: it's worse. No,
3: yeah, that's right, yeah. Uh, and the British return fire from the cruisers is pretty poor. It's generally ineffective. Now, um, 1701, BT reacts to this renewed pressure on his cruisers. What does he do? Conscious
2: that his first duty was to draw the Germans towards Jellicoe, rather than engage in an irrelevant firefight in which he'd be at a disadvantage, he decided to minimise the risk during the run north.
3: Yeah, sensible. This is sensible, isn't it?
2: Yeah, he ordered a turn away onto a northwesterly course, which naturally had the effect of opening out the range, and from 1708, the firing between the rival battlecruisers gradually dies down.
3: Yeah, at the same time, he orders uh, Vice-Admiral Hugh Evan Thomas to prolong the line by taking station astern, but there, <laughs> there's 4,000 yards by this time between the leading Barham and the New Zealand that's at the, the arse end of the battlecruisers. Um uh, how fast just remind me how fast the battle cruiser's going Gary well
2: they're making about 25 knots in contrast to the 23 and a half that could be achieved by the super dreadnoughts so this gap was opening all the time but
3: they're not closing it's getting worse now um they, how, how they, would have had to cut his speed below 24 knots to allow them, the, them to have any chance of catching up did he do that
2: uh, no, he didn't do it, and that's in effect the 5th Battle Squadron were left to act as a powerful rearguard for the
3: Battle Cruisers. Now, the, the, they, they split their fire. The Barham and the Valiant, they, they fire at their German Battle Cruisers. The Warspite and the Malaya are behind them, and they aim at the leading German Battle Squadrons or the 3rd Battle Squadron, 3rd, uh, you know, the lead, well, the Dreadnoughts. Um, do you know what? It's a pretty fraught situation. There's a lot of pressure on them, but how do the super dreadnoughts do? They, they, there's a reason they're called super dreadnoughts. Well, they
2: certainly demonstrate the sting that they carried in their collective towel, didn't they? Several hits were scored on uh, the now struggling sailits. Uh, one shell hit the uh, Lutzov, uh, and other shells crashed into the leading German dreadnoughts, the Grosser Kurfürst and Mark Graf.
3: Glad you said all that.
2: Now, both sides were now exchanging hammer blows, and yeah. once more you're going to tell us what Commander Humphrey wore in the board HMS Warspite says.
3: The noise of their shells over and short was deafening. That frightful crack, crack, crack going all the time. Felt one or two very heavy shakes, but didn't think very much of it at the time, and it never occurred to me that we were being hit. We were firing pretty sh- fast at green 120. No idea, though. It's a direction, it means. Burn. I distinctly saw two of our salvos hit the leading German battleship. Sheets of yellow flames went right over her mastheads, and she looked red fore and aft like a burning haystack. I know we hit her hard. Told everybody in the turret that we were doing all right and to keep going. Machinery working like clockwork mouse, and no hang up of any sort
1: whatsoever.
2: Now, after that excitement, we'll just take a short break.
0: Whatever the
2: imagined maximum speed of the fifth battle squadron, it was clear that they could not shake off the German koenig class dreadnoughts that made up the third battle squadron.
3: Yeah, they're slowly clawing themselves into range. In fact, so if anything, it's going the other way. And uh, as they get, as the German battleships get closer, so the amount of fire that, that, that are directed at the rear couple of ships it increases exponentially. Uh, and you're going to say what, Lieutenant Patrick at now an old favour of us on HMS Malaya says.
2: Their salvos began to arrive thick and fast. From my position in the turret, I could see them fall just short, could hear them going just over, and several times saw a great column of black water fall on the top of the turret roof. I expected at any moment we should get a nasty knock and I realised that if any one of those many shells falling round us should hit us in the right place, our speed would be sadly reduced and that we should not then stand a very good chance. The salvos at the time were coming at a rate of six to nine a minute. Wow.
3: Now at this point, uh, Shears really gets excited. At 1719, he issues the orders, which are in German. You'll perhaps translate it this into German for us so we get the feel of it. He issues the order, frank caution to the winds, pursue the enemy, which is, Gary?
2: Chase, chase the uh the No, enemy. no, I want you to
3: translate it into German. No, it?
2: no, no, that's what it means.
3: Thank you, Gary.
2: That's all right, mate. Now, the Malaya, as the hindmost ship was in severe danger, and to some extent, her continued survival depended purely on luck.
3: Yep, any hit that slowed her speed by anything, almost, uh, and she'd face obliteration. My mind is fluttering to the situation. I've seen uh, Sink the Bismarck a couple of times recently. You know, what the whole thing was, could they slow her down? If they slow her down, doomed.
2: Yeah. I mean, the Malaya's armour would not be able to protect her against the kind of close-range battering she would inevitably receive if the entire high seas fleet overhauled her.
3: Ah, but she was lucky, wasn't she? And this is what the Sub-Lieutenant Clifford Caslan says, who was aboard the Malaya. Malaya was at first very lucky, and although shells were falling all round and the ship deluged in spray, she wasn't hit much. During this time, the range was still too great, about 18,000 yards, for my six... He's on the six-inch gun battery I should have said that. For my six-inch guns to be in action, and I remained a spectator. It was extraordinarily fascinating. The visibility was bad and it was difficult to see the German battleships distinctly, but one could see the flashes of their guns and then after an interval of 30 seconds, the Salvos would fall round the ship. During this period, we never had less than three ships firing us and sometimes more. Wow, wow, wow!
2: Now her luck could not, and actually did not, last. From 1720, the Malaya received serious hits abreast on her B
3: and X turrets. Ooh. Then, 1730, she gets a really bad hit, a dreadful hit on the starboard six-inch battery, and the consequences are just dreadful. This is a horrible bit of this podcast coming up. I hope uh, you'll realise that this is just not funny. Uh, you're going to be tell what happened. Private John Harris, the Royal Marine Light Infantry, a uh, Marine, won uh, the Malaya, and he 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 describes what happened, or starts to describe it.
2: A German battleship took up position on our right and let us have it broadside with everything she had. Shells ripped through the armour plate in like a knife through cheese. One shell dropped amidships, came down through the deckhead and exploded. It ignited our ammunition charges, throwing every man off his feet. We lay half stunned until the dreaded cry, FIRE! It was soon roaring like a furnace, and we were trapped by watertight doors.
3: Now, the shell had hit on the number three gun. It had killed all the crew, and it, uh, as he said, uh, John Harris said, it ignited the cordite that had been put on trolleys at the rear of the guns by the ammunition party. It's actually a bit like, you know, when we were on board HMS Victory. It's actually not, the six-inch gun battery is not that dissimilar, uh, except there's a wall behind it, if you see what I mean. Um, Now, the flash fire, what happens to it? Well, it's swept
2: from end to end of the starboard battery and it causes severe casualties. And once more, you're going to tell us what um, Sub-Lieutenant Clifford Castlem aboard the Malaya says.
3: Yeah, he's in the gun control tower and he says, "Uh, the tower was filled with fumes and blue smoke and we were knocked backwards, but it cleared immediately and there was no damage. Shooter, that's one of the other officers, again called down from the foretop to know if I was all right. And I told him, yes. I put my face to the battery voice pipe to inquire for them. But there was no need to ask. I could hear the most terrible pandemonium and the groans and cries of wounded men. I heard one man call out, Walter, we're burning. Another chilling memory of a second world war film, which people have seen is a uh, compass rose where something very similar happens with the, with the voice pipe shouting down to doomed men. Oh, awful. So now, um,
2: in these desperate circumstances, Caslin was given permission to go down and see what he could do to help. But reaching the scene of the fire proved easier said than done. And uh, this is sub Lieutenant Clifford Castellan once more.
3: The only way down was a ladder that led into the port battery. And on arrival there, I found that all the lights out and a crowd of men were having difficulty joining up a hose to the fire main. This was soon put right. And then a petty officer said that the door at the forward end, dividing the port battery from the starboard, was jammed. In the meantime the lieutenant and midshipman of the port battery went to the dividing door at the after end of the part of the battery with a party to try and get a hose in that way well they've got no time to lose and Caslon he's a bright lad he decides to to back his own brain it back a hunch and he says this i felt sure that the forward door was not jammed as it was much too heavy so went forward to see and as I had expected, found they had missed one of the clips in the darkness. This is the panic and confusion, isn't it, Gary? While I was knocking this back, the men with the hose just behind me were playing it all over me, and I remember very distinctly using bad language at them about it. I only mention this because when the door swung open, a big sheet of flame came through, and the fact of me being wet probably saved me from being nastily burned. Immediately afterwards, this is the terrible bit, five blackened figures rushed out. They were the survivors from number one gun. Yeah.
2: Now, the mental anguish and corresponding relief of those men, seemingly doomed to the most horrible of deaths, only to be reprieved at the very last moment can barely be imagined.
3: Yeah, I can't imagine it. Uh, but it's not over for those men. and uh, we'll, we'll be coming back to this. Uh, speed is of the essence. If, if, if you've got that level of burns, if they're going to be saved, uh, they've also got to put the fire out and they've got to see... They're, they're in battle. They've got to see if any of the six-inch guns are still serviceable and if they can find crews to, to man them. Uh, it, it's... Yeah, well...
2: Well, the aftermath of the fire as the casualties and corpses were brought out was stomach-churning. And this is wireless telegraphist... Frederick Arnold, again aboard the Malaya. We in the wireless office could see the first aid parties passing our door, going to the aft deck, carrying bodies and wounded, laying them out and treating, where possible, the badly burned and shot cases. Some of the dead were so burned and mutilated as to be unidentifiable. The living, badly burned cases were almost encased in wrappings of cotton wool and bandages with just slits for their eyes to see through. In fact, the few walking cases who could wander about the, the after deck presented a grim, weird and ghoulish sight.
3: Ah, oh, it's terrible. And uh, the down below, is a narrow inner passage below decks. just a, It's just a, a corridor passage, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Surgeon Lieutenant Duncan Lorimer, he's got the AFT distribution station uh, and he's with his medical party. And uh, a lot of the burn cases are brought to him. And, you know, there's just bugger all he can do, uh, but look, ro- look on as they suffer. And this is, a, this is the most awful quote for, we've had for a while from uh, Surgeon Lieutenant Duncan Lorimer, as Malaya.
2: A man will walk into the dressing station, or possibly be carried in, with face and hands badly scorched, not deeply burned or disfigured. One would call it a burn of the first degree. Very rapidly, almost as one looks, the face swells up. The looser parts of the skin become enormously swollen. The eyes are invisible through the great swelling of the lids. The lips enormous jelly-like masses, in the centre of which a button-like mouth appears. I have an idea that it must be due to the very high temperature of the burning cordite applied for a very short time. It is quite unlike any burns I have ever seen in civil life and would be very easily avoided by wearing asbestos gloves and masks or similar anti-fire substance. The great cry is water, not much pain and that is easily subdued by morphia. There is then great and increasing restlessness, breathing rapid and shallow and final collapse. The bodies stiffen in their twisted attitudes very rapidly. The scorched areas are confined to the exposed parts, face, head and hands, hair, beard and eyebrows burn off. The skin of the hands, the whole epidermis including the nails, peels off like a glove. In many cases one has to look twice to be certain that one is cutting off only skin and not the whole finger. In very few cases does the burning appear to go any deeper than this and yet they die and die very rapidly. Cases, looking quite slight at first, become rapidly worse and die in an appallingly short time. It is possible in such circumstances to try many remedies. Stimulants, such as spirits and strychnine, were useless. We had no time to transfuse. Whether it would have done any good, I don't know. I doubt it. The end came so rapidly in many cases." Brandy, hot bottles and drinks, with, of course, the dressing of the cases and some operations were the utmost we could do.
3: There's some interesting points there. One, it's as a result of this battle. If, if you ever see pictures of HMS Belfast, they bring in the asbestos clothing, the hoods and the, the gloves. Uh, the other thing is uh, transfusion, means trans, I presume that's blood transfusions, transfusions yeah. yeah. I found that quote quite, quite uh, depressing. Anyway, uh, just ahead of the Malaya, there's another ship. Who's the one in front of that?
2: Well, the war spite, and uh, she'd also been hit by a salvo of shells that crashed down onto the quarter deck at her ex turret at around 1730. Commander Walwyn was ordered by the captain to go aft and see what was happening. And yes. you're going to once more tell us what Commander Humphrey Walwin sees.
3: I thought for a few seconds, I like this, should I go over the top of the turret or down through the shell room? i.e. safe or not safe, Uh, well not not safe or safe, but uh, I realised I ought to get there quickly and decided to go over the top. I didn't waste much time on the roof as the noise was awful and the the shells were coming over pretty quick. As I got down the starboard ladder of B turret, both A and B fired and made me skip a little bit quicker, ran down ladder and tried to get into port superstructure. All clips were on so I climbed over second cutter. As I got up, one came through the after funnel with an awful screech and splattered about everywhere. I put up my coat collar and ran like a stag, fe- feeling in a hell of a funk. I just, like, just the <laughs> popping collides. Oh, dear.
2: Now, at first, he couldn't find anything wrong. Despite searching through the mess decks, then he actually saw a shell hit.
3: Went through the foc'sle mess deck and <clears throat> was just going forward when a 12-inch came through the side armour on the boys' mess deck. Terrific sheet of golden flame, stink, impenetrable dust, and everything seemed to fall everywhere with an appalling noise.
2: Wow. Now, Walwin swings into action, organising. He's the
3: executive officer, I should have said that, yeah.
2: He swings into action to. Don't worry about interrupting me, please.
3: I'm not going to
2: interrupt you. Organising the various damage control parties because, as you mentioned earlier, speed was essential. It was. The severed fire mains allowed thousands of gallons of water to flood the decks below X turret with awful consequences for one-trapped sailor and this is able seaman gunner Percival Cox aboard the warspite. The working chamber was flooded. A shell had severed the four-inch fire main and water was pouring into the handling room. I reported this to the gunhouse. They soon had it under control but the sentry was in charge of the escape hatch was drowned.
3: I think that's just awful, don't you? That's their own water. That's not, that, that's not the sea.
2: No, no, no. And unsurprisingly, Walwyn, at last, was forced to pause to catch his breath. And you're going to be once more Commander Humphrey I Walwyn. I like the
3: sound of Humphrey Walwyn. <laughs> Had a cigarette on the port side of the cook's lobby. I rather started one to steady my feelings. Had a yarn with a pay officer uh, who was wandering about in a capuck waistcoat using appalling language as to when the Grand Fleet was going to turn up. Had a laugh together anyway. Whilst there, a 12-inch shell came into the warrant officer's galley and blew through the deck. A stoker alongside me looked and said, there goes my fucking dinner.
2: Now, despite all the alarms and hits, yeah, I see what you've done there, Pete. It won't be meaning to anybody yet. Uh, The second distinct phase of the Battle of Jutland, subsequently known as the run to the north, was characterised by the up. Uh, almost miraculous survival of the fifth battle squadron.
3: I think so. Um, uh, th- 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 this, it, it is amazing to me that these four ships survived, uh, th- th- and they're not—they're not just victims, are they? They're not—they're so really, really—they're they're trials and tribulations that would depress anyone. But what are the Bar and the Valiant and Warspite Malaya doing?
2: Well, they're distinguishing themselves through the uh, prowess of their magnificent gunnery as they continue to score repeated hits on the German ships that threatened them.
3: And what do you think a, a, a repeated hits by 15-inch shells does to a ship?
2: A technical term? Yeah. Buggers it. Now, the Seydlitz were systematically battered. Buggered. Or buggered. As were the Lutzow and the Derflinger. All of these battlecruisers cru- felt the crushing weight of the huge British 15-inch shells.
3: Now... Wow. We, look, think about it, Gary. So what you? The Germans had high expectations. sheer must have von Hipper. The, 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 the run to the south is th- this is their moment. How do you think they felt?
2: Well, it must have been deeply disappointing for them. Yeah. And this is what Commander George oh, von God, has God, not him. of SMS Dearing. <laughs>
3: Sorry. I know what we're going to get.
2: don't listen. But except, I can't remember if he's Richtofen or who. He, he's off. Oh. oh, okay. This part of the action fought against a numerically inferior but more powerfully armed enemy who kept us under fire at ranges at which we were helpless was highly depressing, nerve-racking, and exasperating. Our only means of defense was to leave the line for a short time when we saw that the enemy had our range. As this manoeuvre was imperceptible to the enemy, we extricated ourselves at regular intervals from the
3: hail of fire. And he sums it up because, I mean, I, I like Von Hayes, he's a great character, but the, the long ranges they're firing at, they're a bit beyond their 12 and 11-inch guns, uh, the visibility's not good, uh, the drifting smoke, that reduces the effectiveness of the battle cruiser, German battlecruiser fire, doesn't it? Um, so let's, come on, let's let's move towards a summary of this phase. Uh, how are you going to start?
2: Well, in the event, neither side suffered the kind of disaster that might have been expected.
3: Yep, yeah, the heavy armour of the super dreadnoughts did prevent the kind of damage which might have reduced their speed or combat efficiency, uh, and uh, the armour of the German battlecruisers. Well, how about that?
2: Well, it couldn't prevent severe damage from the 15-inch shells that severely eroded their fighting powers, but it proved sound enough to protect their vitals. Now, in summary, Scheer did not succeed in significantly reducing the strength of the Grand Fleet. That was his stated objective.
3: That was the purpose of his sorting into North Sea, to entrap and destroy a significant portion of the British fleet. Uh, he'd, 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 he'd had his chance... But through the resilience of the super dreadnoughts, it slipped through his fingers. Um, well, what would you say, the end at the end of this phase, what would you say, is, is there a sea change, to use uh, an expression? The, you know, well,
2: you... Shear's period of ascendancy had passed. There was no clear victor in the run to the north, except perhaps for the man who lurked over the horizon. <gasps> Jellicoe's long-awaited moment was approaching.
3: Jellicoe. What's going to happen, Gary? What? What?
2: You'll have to tune in to find out.
3: Or buy Jutland by Peter Hart and Nigel Steele. It's all in there. Cheers, Pete. Cheers, Gary. <music> Thanks for listening to the show. Blah If you'd like to support blau, blau. us, you can now buy us a coffee. Blau, blau, Visit www.buymeacoffee.com backslash pg mh or
2: visit blah, blah, blah,
0: blah, and we'd be jolly grateful cheers when you make decisions for your company you look for the no-brainers and if you have a lot of mailing to do stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer it streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient which makes you less busy make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com, sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and
2: Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee, at buy me a coffee forward slash pgmh or consider subscribing to the podcast for only two pounds per month and get ad free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?